All right, so today uh, we come to Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat, Daniel uh, chapter 8. Uh, and if chapter 7 wasn't confusing enough for you, uh, I got more for you. Plenty more where that came from. Uh, so here's Daniel 8. Uh, so uh, Nostradamus uh, was born in uh, 1503, and he was a French apothecary and astrologer and physician uh, whose prophecies earned him a great deal of uh, loyal following. Uh, in 1550, Nostradamus published the first of what he called his almanacs. Uh, and an almanac is a kind of a collection of astrological information and uh, fun little nuggets and tidbits about what's going on in the world. Uh, but he uh, put some predictions in his uh, almanac uh, for the coming year, uh, and those predictions made him quite uh, famous throughout all uh, of France, in fact. And so uh, because these almanacs were, were, were so well received, he decided that in 1554, uh, he would publish this massive volume called The Prophet prophecies, which was full of predictions for the far term and for the near term. Now, when he wrote his prophecies, he wrote them in a style of verse called quatrains, which are four-lined rhymed verses uh, which claim uh, to predict the future. Now, he was using astrology to predict the future, and astrology, of course, is just the study of forecasting events by where the Earth sits in relation to various constellations and stars and planets, etc., uh, but that was his method of, of uh, coming up with these, uh, with these predictions. And believe it or not, like in the 500 years since his death, uh, he has been credited with accurately predicting the French Revolution, uh, the rise of Hitler, JFK's assassination, 9-11, and even COVID. Uh, all of these have been attributed to Nostradamus and some of the predictions that he made. Now the thing is, he intentionally wrote these predictions to be as vague as possible because he was trying to disguise his meaning. And scholars say he did that because he was living during the end period of the Inquisition. And he was worried that if he wrote too explicitly that he would be uh, in trouble with religious and political authorities and might even get himself killed. So his quatrains are a mixture of Greek, Latin, Italian, and, and this uh, obscure dialect of the French language. It's almost like they're written in a code. Uh, and so they're so vague that they could be almost applied to anything. And in fact, they have been applied to just about everything that's ever happened since they've been written. Uh, and so uh, that hasn't prevented him, though, from, from becoming uh, immensely popular. I remember myself seeing uh, a special with uh, Orson Welles was the narrator of, of this uh, documentary on Nost Nostradamus. And I tell you, I was chilled uh, after watching this thing, but uh, a little bit of research into Nostradamus, and, and you're not quite as impressed. Well, <clears throat> Daniel's prophecies are anything but vague, uh, and that's because he didn't receive them through astrology, looking at stars and where we fit in the constellation. He received visions directly from God. And we've already seen the remarkable accuracy of his prophecies in chapter 2 when we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue and when we looked at Daniel 7 last week, the vision of the four beasts. Well, this week we're going to drill down deeper into two of those beasts that we talked about last week. We're going to drill down into the countries or the beasts that are represented uh, by Medo-Persia and by Greece. So in chapter 7, Medo-Persia is represented by this bear uh, who has one side raised up higher than the other, which indicates that one side of the kingdom will be uh, more powerful than the other. And this is talking about Medo-Persia, of course. 
Now in chapter 8, uh, we have a goat who has one horn that's longer than the other, uh, and that goat represents, I'm sorry, a ram that has one horn that's longer than the other, and that ram represents Medo-Persia. In uh, chapter 7, uh, Greece was represented by this leopard that had four heads, but here in chapter 8, Greece is re represented by a goat with one horn that breaks off, four horns rise up in its place, and then one horn grows out from one of those uh, other horns, uh, what is called the little horn. So although uh, Daniel's prophecies about what is going to happen, remember he's, he's prophesying at a time when Babylon is still in power, and he's prophesying about kingdoms that are coming, uh, he's, he's, he's astounding in the accuracy of his prophecies regarding Medo-Persia and Greece. But the focus of Daniel 8 is really the little horn, and he's what we're going to be focusing on today. And the little horn is most likely a dual fulfillment prophecy, which means that it will have a, a fulfillment closer in time to Daniel and then further in time uh, from Daniel. So uh, from our perspective, our vantage point in history, it's been fulfilled already, and we are waiting for a second fulfillment when Jesus uh, returns to defeat the Antichrist. So Daniel was no Nostradamus. Uh, his prophecies are specific, they are detailed, uh, and from our vantage point in history, it's very easy to see uh, how these have been fulfilled in history. Now, although Daniel did not understand all that he wrote, we certainly can uh, from our vantage point. And so Daniel has proven to be a true prophet of God. His prophecies come true. And the best part of Daniel chapter 8 is, even though it's confusing, what we learn is that uh, Daniel is prophesying about ultimately the coming uh, of Jesus and the final defeat of the Antichrist. And because so many of Daniel's prophecies have already come true, we can have absolute confidence that these remaining prophecies, which have not yet been fulfilled, will be fulfilled. And so our takeaway is that God is in control of history, brothers and sisters, and so we can trust God. We can trust God. All he says will come to pass. All right, so let's start by looking at the vision of the ram. This is verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. That's referencing chapter 7. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, uh, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand against him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and made himself great. All right, <clears throat> looking at our chart that I gave you in the beginning when we started this, uh, we're now in the third year of uh, King Belshazzar. Uh, so that's 551 B.C. Uh, from the time that Daniel is talking here, uh, it's still 14 years until Medo-Persia will conquer Babylon, and Daniel's already prophesying about Greece destroying Medo-Persia. Uh, so that is staggering in and of itself that he could do that. And I also just want to mention that uh, beginning here uh, in chapter 8, the language of the book of Daniel reverts back to Hebrew. So from chapter 2, verse 4, until the end of chapter 7, uh, because the, the prophecy has to do with, with uh, the, the Gentile nations, it's written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentiles. 
But now beginning in verse 8 and through the end of the book, uh, the, the, the uh, prophecy has to do with Israel and with the Gentiles' effect and influence on Israel. And so it's written in Hebrew from this point forward. Now, since Belshazzar was still in power, uh, most people, most scholars think that Daniel was not actually uh, in Susa, uh, but he was in, uh, in Babylon, which is about 200 miles west of Susa. Uh, and so he's along this place called the Uli Canal. Uh, and uh, Susa, of course, also known as Shushan, if you have that in your uh, particular translation, Susa would become the capital of Persia, uh, but not until like another 75 years had passed. In fact, the whole book of Esther, uh, which happens about 465 or so BC, takes place in Susa. Uh, that's where Esther resides. So Daniel saw this ram uh, at, at, along the canal. Uh, and Daniel 8.20 uh, tells us specifically that the ram represents uh, the kingdoms of Media and Persia. So we're not guessing here. We're not speculating that the, the scripture is explicit. We'll see it when we get to, to verse 20. Uh, so one horn was longer than the other, and the longer horn grew up later than the shorter horn. So in the vision of Daniel chapter 7, when we talked about the vision of the four beasts, remember the bear had one side raised up higher than the other, which represented the stronger kingdom of Persia over uh, the Median Empire. Here, the longer horn represents Persia, which arose after Media, but ultimately became more powerful than Media. Uh, and so uh, that's the, the, the meaning of the longer horn. And now this ram who's been standing by the canal begins to, begins to charge uh, northward, westward, southward. No one could resist his power. He crushed all opponents and dominated the world. Well, this was fulfilled historically. Uh, the Persian Empire arose uh, and it crushed all opposition beginning with Babylon in 539 and, and lasted for about 200 years until uh, Alexander the Great conquered Medo-Persia in 331 BC. And Alexander is represented by the goat who we'll look at now in verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a prominent horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had been standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come up beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and smashed his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So we hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat made himself exceedingly great. But once he became powerful, the large horn was broken, and in its place four prominent horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. All right, so in Daniel 7... Uh, the, in the vision of the four beasts, uh, he was, uh, Greece is represented by the leopard with four heads. Uh, here, uh, the goat represents Greece. And 8.21, Daniel 8.21, specifically says the goat is Greece. So again, uh, not speculating here. Uh, the goat came from the west, just as Greece came from the west to conquer Persia. And it came without touching the ground here in Daniel 8, which shows its speed and its ferocity 
and the goat rushed at the ram with mighty wrath. So why was the goat so angry? What's with all the wrath? Well, uh, Greek and media, uh, Greek and, and Persia had history together. Uh, in 490 BC, the Persians had conquered the Greeks at the barrel, Battle of Marathon. And then again, in 481 BC, uh, the Persians had defeated the Greeks at a place called the Battle of Salamis. So Greece is now about to take its revenge. That's why uh, the, the, the uh, goat is so angry. And so this prophecy was fulfilled in history by this man, Alexander the Great, and he is the horn of the goat. Now, Alexander the Great was the son of Philip of Macedon II, uh, king of Greece. Uh, Philip, I mean, uh, uh, Alexander was schooled by Aristotle, and he acceded to the throne of uh, Greece in 336 BC at the age of 20 years old. And he immediately embarked on a military campaign that changed the entire world. And by the age of 30, he had one of the largest world empires that the world has ever seen that extended from Greece all the way to northwest India. Well, Persia was in Alexander's way, uh, so he had to defeat them. And he first met and defeated the Persians uh, at the Granicus River in Asia in May 334. That's the circle on your left. And then moving west to east, uh, he conquered Persia in 333 at the Battle of Issus. And then his finally, final victor, victory over uh, Persia was near Nineveh in 331 BC. So it took him only four years, three years maybe, to, to destroy the whole Medo-Persia Empire. And the ram, which is uh, the Medo-Persia Empire, had no power, no strength to stand before the goat. And so the goat is Greece and its horn is Alexander the Great. Uh, the goat made himself exceedingly great, which certainly Alexander was as one of the premier world rulers who has ever lived. But once the goat became powerful, the large horn was broken and four prominent horns rose up in his place. Now, Alexander the Great died in 323 BC. He was only like 33 years old when he died. And scholars disagree about whether he died from, uh, from, from drunkenness or whether he died because he was poisoned by uh, one of his administrators. But he had no heir, and since he had no heir, his kingdom was divided into four separate parts among his leading generals, and it looked like this. So uh, Cassander assumed role over Macedonia and Greek. Lysamachus took control of Thrace, Bithynia, and Asia Minor. That's the green. Seleucus, the orange, took Syria and the lands uh, to the east, including Babylon. And Ptolemy uh, is the purple there. He took uh, Egypt uh, to the south. So for our purposes, what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book, particularly in Daniel 11, is that the, the only two kings that really matter for our purposes are Seleucus and Ptolemy, because uh, Seleucus is the king of the north, Ptolemy is the king of the south, and they will do battle uh, with each other, particularly in Daniel chapter 11. So now we have no longer Alexander. We have four kings in their place, and we're going to have a little horn that arises from one of those kings, and we'll see that in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and power. All right, so... 
In Daniel's vision, the little horn grew from one of the four horns. So the little horn that would arise arises from the Seleucid Empire, uh, from the northern part of the kingdom that I showed you just a second ago, located there in Syria, the orange part. And so from that point of reference, from Syria, uh, the land to the south is Egypt, and the land to the east is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And the beautiful land that he talks about is that little strip of purple uh, between right here, between Syria and Egypt, that's the promised land, that's Israel. Uh, and so that's the beautiful land. And so in Daniel chapter seven, uh, we had a little horn and that represented the Antichrist. Remember we talked about the little horn and the Antichrist last week who will appear in the last days. But here in Daniel eight, uh, at least the near fulfillment of the little horn uh, is a man called uh, Antiochus IV. This is his bust. Uh, he later added the term epiphanies to his title, uh, which means God manifest in himself, in other words. Uh, this man is claiming to be God, and he's known to history as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So he rose to power, this man, in 175 BC, uh, and he invaded the south and he invaded uh, to the east. And so Israel, that little purple piece I showed you a second ago, uh, that became the battleground between Syria and Egypt as these countries are warring with each other uh, and they're constantly trampling back and forth across Israel as they fight with each other. Uh, and Israel is the place where Antiochus Epiphanes uh, committed some of his most atrocious and blasphemous acts against God. So beginning in 170 BC, uh, verses 10 and 11 describe his reign of terror. Uh, he, uh, we know from history that he assassinated the Jewish high priest in 170, whose name was Ananias III. Uh, he made laws forbidding the Jews from offering uh, sacrifices, and, and he uh, killed those uh, who, uh, would not, uh, who would not obey his regulations. And he plundered the temple, uh, took all of, the, all of the precious metals and treasures. But his worst act of blasphemy, the worst thing he did, was he entered the temple, uh, built an altar to Zeus in, 19, or in uh, 167 BC, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple. Now, uh, you cannot think of anything that would be more offensive to a Jew than to build an altar to a pagan god and sacrifice a pig in it on their temple. So it was a challenge uh, to the Israelites, and it was a claim of superiority over Israel's God. Well, why would God allow this? Uh, verse 12 speaks of transgression, and the transgression uh, described in verse 12, probably refers to Israel's sin. Uh, and the host is uh, Israel being given over to Antiochus Epiphanes uh, as God's agent of judgment over Israel. Now, there are a couple of books, the book of 1 Maccabees and the book of 2 Maccabees. These are historical books that were written between the Old and the New Testament, and they were written uh, shortly after the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and they describe how uh, even Israel adopted pagan and idolatrous practices during these days. So the book of 1 Maccabees, uh, verses, uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 43, says this, all the Gentiles accepted the command of the king, and many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. So why does God allow Antiochus Epiphanes? Because he will not tolerate this kind of behavior. So he gives Israel over to Antiochus Epiphanes to trample them to the ground and to overthrow truth, which means destroying the Hebrew scriptures and killing people who, would not, uh, who are caught with them. 
So 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 56 and 57 also says this, The books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire, where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned them to death. So this little horn was going to hold Israel under his thumb. And so the next thing that happens in our prophecy is that it turns to, well, how long will this happen? Uh, and Daniel heard two, ex- uh, two angels discussing this matter. How long will this persecution go on? Verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, the 2,300 evenings and mornings are are hard to calculate. Uh, Does it mean 2,300 days, like 2,300 calendar days? Uh, Or does it mean 2,300 evenings and mornings, totaling 1,150 days, uh, since the 1,150 evening sacrifices and 1,100 morning sacrifices would equal a total of 2,300? So we can't really be sure. But what we do know from this prophecy is that the end date is the restoration of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated it. So that much is clear from the text. So uh, historically, on on 25 Kislev, 167, uh, the date known to us as December 14th, 167 BC, uh, Judas Maccabeus and his army uh, defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, kicked them out of the temple, and cleansed the temple and rededicated it. And today, uh, the Jewish holiday known as... Hanukkah, that's right, commemorates that day. Very good. Uh, So counting backwards from that date, assuming that uh, December 14th, 164 is the date that that this happened, the, the, the cleansing of the temple, counting back from that date, if the 2300 days view is correct, then it probably goes back to 170 BC when the high priest Onias uh, was assassinated. Uh, but if the 1150 days view is correct, then it probably goes back to the day that Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, the arguments for each one of these views is complicated and, and I'm not gonna get into it all. Uh, but what I think we, we need to take from this is that whichever one of these views is right, the prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now remember, this is you know, three, 400 years after Daniel wrote. All of this was, was specifically fulfilled. And so, as we'll see later though, this is probably only a partial fulfillment of these prophecies of Daniel. Uh, the later fulfillment still uh, we have to, to come as a future Antichrist is coming, who I believe will also fulfill Daniel's prophecy. So just imagine you're Daniel and you've seen all this and you're like, I have no idea what it is. I'll write the stuff down, but I have no idea what I'm seeing here. Uh, So can anybody give me a hand? And and I think that's what Daniel is doing here as we come to verses 15 through 19. Uh, He seeks understanding of the vision. So he says, uh, verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing there before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he came near to where I was standing, and he came, and I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. 
Now, while he was talking with me, I was dazed with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand at my place. And he said, behold, I am going to inform you what will occur at the final period of the indignation because it pertains to the appointed time of the end. All right, now, before we dig into the interpretation, I just don't want us to lose the fact uh, that, that there is a spiritual realm that exists, right? Daniel is talking to angels, uh, and, and you know, we can blow over that while we're trying to figure out what's going on in the prophecy. Daniel's having a conversation with angels here. Uh, so there is a spiritual realm that exists, and there are spiritual battles going on uh, that we have no idea are going on. And so uh, we shouldn't be ignorant of this. And the Bible specifically says uh, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And so we have been equipped with certain tools that can be used for our defense. They're not human tools, right? We have all the tools that are spoken about in Ephesians 6, the spiritual weapons God has given us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have prayer. And we're going to talk about this a whole lot more when we get to Daniel chapter 10. But I just want to bring this to your attention now as kind of a preview. Well, Daniel himself, he couldn't understand the vision. So uh, he goes to these, these angels for help. He asks this man standing by, uh, can you tell me? Uh, and this guy is an angel, and he instructs the angel Gabriel to tell Daniel what's going on. And so here, for the first time, we have the mention of an angel by name, right? The angel Gabriel, the first time in the Bible uh, that the angel is named. Now, he's named again. We'll see him next week in Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. He's also mentioned in the New Testament, you'll recall, when he prophesies uh, uh, to Zacharias about the coming of John the Baptist and when he prophesies to the Virgin Mary about the coming uh, birth of Jesus Christ. So when Gabriel spoke, Daniel fell flat on his face. Uh, and so uh, the angel called him Son of Man, which is a very interesting title, especially since just last week in chapter 7 when we were studying that, uh, it's Jesus who was known as Son of Man, right? So Jesus adopted that title for himself, uh, and so Daniel has called it here. So I think in this particular case, uh, the, the title Son of Man stresses Daniel's humanity uh, and his weakness and the distance that separates him from God. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, that's a favorite title uh, that God uses to call Ezekiel to, 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 to demonstrate, to, to highlight uh, his weakness uh, and, and the gap that exists between him and God. So uh, I think that's what's going on with the title Son of Man. So the angel makes him stand up on two feet. And I think here for the first time in these verses, uh, what we're seeing here is that there's a hint uh, in Daniel 8, that, that the prophecy is not just about Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, but it's also about a future uh, time of fulfillment, a future Antichrist. Because uh, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that the vision is, is what will occur in the final period of indignation. And two times he says, what will happen at the time of the end? And so some commentators think that these phrases refer to the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, uh, the time of the end, the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. But others think that these verses refer to a future Antichrist uh, who will arise in the final days. And so I'll talk more about that when we get to verses 23 to 25. Uh, but first, from Daniel's perspective, let's talk about the near fulfillment of this vision, verses 20 to 22. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. 
the broken horn and the four horns that came up in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So here we have it explicitly, right? The, the ram is Medo-Persia and the goat is Greece. And Daniel couldn't have known it at the time, of course, but because of the unfolding uh, nature of world history on this side of it, we know that Alexander the Great was that first king. And so he's the one who conquered Medo-Persia. So he's the king, he's the horn. Now the four horns that rise up, we know from this side of history, are the four kings that we spoke about earlier. Uh, but they were weakened by division, right? They never had the same power that Alexander the Great had when he ruled over one world empire. Uh, these, uh, these four nations are characterized by infighting and civil war, so they don't have Alexander the Great's power. Now, verses 20 to 22 have already been fulfilled in history, right? They've already been fulfilled. These four kingdoms have already arisen. But verses 23 to 25 may represent a jump in time from history that's already been fulfilled uh, to a time that awaits future fulfillment. So let's look closely at these verses, verses 23 to 25. And in that latter period of their dominion, when the wrongdoers have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and be successful and do as he pleases. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will make deceit a success by his influence, and he will make himself great in his own mind, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency." All right, so earlier I said some commentators think that uh, all of this prophecy uh, signifies the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign and that all of the elements of these prophecies in verses 23 to 25 uh, can be harmonized with the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. And in fact, many of them can. Uh, he arose in the latter part of Greece's domination uh, by murdering his own brother. That's how he rose to power. And this was apparently a time of great wickedness in Israel, which is why God handed Israel over to be trampled by him. Uh, he was bold and he was deceptive and he was powerful. And it was not by his own power, uh, but perhaps it was by God's power who empowered him to, to uh, hold Israel under his thumb. And he destroyed thousands and he enjoyed great success and he fooled many people by exalting himself. He even inscribed coins, minted coins with the title Epiphanies on the coins, uh, making himself equal to God, a God manifest, as I said earlier. However, there are ways to look at this prophecy uh, and, and think, uh, think about them uh, that they don't synchronize with Antiochus Epiphanes' reign at all. Uh, and I think that may point to a future fulfillment of this prophecy. So as I mentioned earlier, in verses 17 and 19, uh, there is talk of, of a future end time of indignation. And two times the angel says that this refers to the time of the end. Now, that could refer to the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, but I think more likely it could also refer to end times, the final period of indignation. And that's why many people see a future fulfillment of verses 23 to 25 at the time when Jesus destroys the Antichrist, rather than this referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. So, some of these phrases might refer to the end times, like his mightiness doesn't come from himself, but it comes from Satan's power, right? Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. Uh, he will oppose the prince of princes, which there really isn't a prince of princes who corresponds to history. That seems like an obvious reference to Jesus, uh, in my view. Uh, and this also, he will be destroyed without human agency. 
So destroyed without human agency could mean that he wasn't murdered. Uh, that's possible. Uh, but it could also mean that he will, he will be destroyed by, by divine agency. So uh, he died naturally, Antiochus Epiphanes. He died of disease. Uh, and what may be happening here is that this refers to the future Antichrist whose demise comes as a result of divine judgment, divine intervention, and Jesus' victory over him. So again, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to die on this hill. But I think, I think that verses 23 to 25 probably point to a future fulfillment referencing Jesus' victory over the Antichrist, which will fulfill Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask of me, and, it will, and I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So whether verses 23 to 25 refer to the future Antichrist or not, it's going to happen. Jesus is coming, and he will destroy the Antichrist. So now let's just take a brief look at Daniel's reaction to the vision, verses 26 and 27. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. But as for you, keep the vision secret because it pertains to many days in the future. That was the angel speaking. Uh, now verse 27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was no one to explain it. All right, so probably a better translation of the words keep it secret is seal it up, as in preserve it. Uh, and if that were not true, we wouldn't have this in the book of Daniel, right? He had to write it down and preserve it, and that's why it's in the book of Daniel. But this vision was so distressing to Daniel that he had to call out sick from work for several days to recover. He was just uh, absolutely in disbelief over this thing uh, and very distressed by it. And after those days, he got up and carried on the king's business. Now, you and I, I think, can all understand uh, Daniel's emotions, right? There are so many times in our own lives when, when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives or what he's trying to teach us. But I hope that Daniel 8, as we've gone through it here, and even the nuances we don't understand, the big picture is that God is sovereign and God is good and, and God loves us. And so for application, uh, let's just think about those couple things. Uh, the first one is uh, that we need to learn to trust God if we don't already. Because God is good, even when he doesn't explain himself to us, right? Uh, Daniel longed for answers to the vision. He was seeking out anyone who could help him. He's distressed and exhausted. And don't you feel that way about life sometimes, right? Life can be a real grind and we're going through stuff and we don't know why and what God is trying to teach us. But I hope that the prophecies in the book of Daniel will just give us great comfort uh, that, that God is in control of all history. And since that's true, and since he sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to die on a cross uh, for our sin in our place and be raised from the dead so that we can have eternal life, uh, I pray that that would help us trust God even when we don't understand. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's good. And though we don't always understand, God does, right? God has a plan. He just doesn't reveal the blueprints to us uh, in advance. And so, and he also doesn't owe us an explanation for everything that he allows, right? So for Daniel, God's purpose in giving the vision to Daniel was not so that Daniel could understand it. It was to record that vision for us. That was why. 
And so when we don't understand what God is doing, and when sometimes uh, we have to live with unanswered questions, well, like Daniel, we should still trust God. And the next thing we ought to do, like Daniel, is to obey God. The title of our study is The Faithfulness of a Great Man and the Sovereignty of Our Great God. Daniel had God's favor, right? But from time to time, uh, he was confused. He didn't know what was going on. Uh, imagine, he's exiled from his homeland at about 15 years old, uh, ripped from the land, the only thing he had ever known. Uh, and he stayed in that place, far away from his home until the end of his life, probably 70 more years. And yet he remained obedient. Now, this is not the life Daniel would have chosen, right? He was plucked from his homeland, probably taken away from his parents. Uh, he was forced to serve under pagan kings in a foreign land. And yet Daniel continued to obey God and allow God to use him. And how did God use him? God used Daniel to show even kings that God is sovereign over all things uh, and as a witness to others about God's glory. And so if there's anything going on in our lives that we don't understand, that we would like God to take away, we ought to be like Daniel and pray a prayer like this. God, I don't understand this, but like Daniel, I am willing to be used as your instrument for your purposes. I trust you and I will obey. Amen? Amen. Lord God, uh, we thank you for these prophecies. Lord, they are, are difficult and they are confusing. Uh, we thank you that we live on this side of history so that we can understand that uh, many of them have already been fulfilled, which give us great confidence uh, that the rest of them will be fulfilled as well. And, and we eagerly anticipate uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus, Lord. And uh, we look for it with, with great anticipation. And we, we, we just can't imagine uh, the wonder and the greatness that, that will come uh, when he comes, Lord. But we look forward to it, Lord. And in the meantime, we just thank you for these prophecies and uh, pray that they will strengthen us, Lord, and, and teach us to trust you and obey you, even when life is confusing and we don't understand. We praise you in Christ's matchless name, Lord. Amen.